Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the rising concerns over the spread of COVID-19. Do they signal a time to buy or sell? Also, we discuss why investors were not calmed by the aggressive intervention from the Federal Reserve and what fund managers are telling us about the opportunities and threats out there. With Nikki Yeagers, Head of Investments, John Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation, Mike Haslam, Head of Fund Investing, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, thanks for joining us. First things first, our thoughts are obviously at this time um, with the people that are affected by coronavirus. Of course, it is a humanitarian issue, first and foremost, where everything else will pale into insignificance. But nonetheless, we are tasked with trying to help our clients of the bank through this, both as businesses and indeed investors. In the short run, we do expect the economic effects to be material. And in some corners of the economy, that will um, be quite difficult to digest. To that end, we do need to try to sort of dispassionately dissect the incoming information and provide the highest quality analysis that we possibly can to help you make informed choices. Um, To that end, I am joined by a trio of experts this week. Um, They've promised me that they are fully capable of fitting that brief. I'll let you guys be the (laughs) judge of that. that. (laughs) Um, Given given that this is uh, audio and not visual, um, there are a few so groaning looking faces <laughs> pulled, but but I know that you guys have it in you. So first and foremost, we've got JP back again, our head of asset allocation. Um, he'll help us understand what some of the market moves have been. We have Mike Haslam, our head of investment funds, and he's going to help um, help us sort of unpick a little bit what our third party managers are doing um, to provide us that that deeper insight. And as usual, Will will fill in the gaps, um, if indeed there are any. Um, So in case there aren't, Will, I might come to you first, if you don't mind. Um, Set the scene for us a little bit. What, What has gone on this week? Yeah, Nikki, um, it has been a pretty busy one, as you say. Um, Essentially, you've seen kind of rising international alarm at the prospects for COVID-19 going kind of truly global, as you said. Um, So even though the numbers of people um, so far directly affected outside of China are are reasonably small, uh, and the incoming economic data still looks okay outside of China, um, you saw the Federal Reserve, um, the US central bank, really the world's central bank in a sense, uh, went ahead with an emergency rate cut of um, 50 basis points, half a percent. Um, Now, this is really in anticipation of a sharp downturn in the economy as a mixture of kind of containment efforts, uh, fear and supply chain effects, among many other things, basically um, bring the world economy uh, to a juddering halt. So goes the theory anyway. And other policymakers are increasingly um, expected to follow suit. Now, uh, our best guess for what it's worth um, is that, uh, as you sort of mentioned in your introduction, this is mostly a temporary uh, kind of transitory economic hit um, and that we will likely see a kind of V-shaped recovery, uh, probably in the second half of the year, uh, rather than a, a U-shaped recovery or an L-shaped recovery, which would be the worst case, uh, worst case outcome. Um, we can actually take a little bit of kind of uh, measured reassurance uh, so far. 
from China's experience in some senses, um, where all of those high frequency data points that we've been talking about uh, are actually starting to show some kind of signs of economic life after that kind of abrupt halt um, of the last month. So things like, I mean, weirdly, people are looking at traffic congestion, um, uh, daily coal burn, and you found that traffic, traffic congestion, congestion is at kind of 80% of its pre-lunar holiday levels. So you are seeing some return of economic activity there. Like I say, half one is clearly going to be very difficult across a range of industries for the world economy nonetheless, um, particularly things like leisure, um, tourism, um, you know, those focused areas. So that that's really kind of how the story's evolved a bit this week. Mm, okay. And, and JP, as Will said, we had a 50 base point US rate cut. Looking at historical precedent on, on that kind of uh, emergency rate cut, it, it is a little bit sobering. Um, so when we look at previous instances, the financial crisis, 9-11, the tech bubble, the 1998 Russian crisis and the collapse of LTCM. Are we seeing this 50 basis point cut differently to those emergency actions back then? Well, as, as you correctly point out, in, in the past, we have seen that it was quite common for the Federal Reserve to do an emergency rate cut if there was a very visible shock to the economy by the examples you just alluded to. Uh, so far, we're still in the dark on what the impact will be on the U.S. economy of the viral outbreak. Um, as, as, as Will referred to, the, the service sector and the labor market are still in a very good shape in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, we would have expected the Fed to wait a little bit until they see some of the, the economic impacts appear in survey data. So this lo- to us, this looks quite preemptive. Um, and and that that's something they have been using in the recent past as well. So during the trade dispute, we've also used a lot of the words preemptive or insurance rate cuts. So before they see the economic data deteriorating, that the central bank starts reducing the policy rate. Um, so it feels like central banks are very sensitive to the downside uh, for economic growth. And that's something we see elsewhere as well. So we've had the central banks in Australia and in Canada lowering their policy rates as well. And JP, as soon as as soon as it was done, it didn't really seem to have the the intended effect. Stock markets fell back quite quite hard. The bond market moved to to price in even more interest rates, well, interest rate cuts. Well, in 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 we're now in an environment of, in a time where we see quite large swings in stock markets. So we see the stock market swing up and down by two and four percent. So I don't think we should read too much in a one day move in, in, in stock markets. But what we indeed see is that expectations for further rate cuts um, are, are, are rising and that, that's across the board. So for example, we see for the Bank of England where previously one rate cut was priced in by bond markets. We now see two rate cuts are being priced in. Uh, and, and we also see, we did see some dollar weakness and some emerging assets outperform. So those would typically be the responses you would expect by those kind of sizable adjustments in the policy rate by the Fed. Yeah. And I mean, can I ask, what, what good would a half point cut do, to, you know, anyway? Um, surely that's not actually going to make much of a difference if a company is hit hard by the repercussions from the coronavirus. It's not going to make consumers change their their habits in the short term, um, I would have thought. Um, Don't governments need to be a little bit more creative here? Um, Italy, for example, have promised tax credits uh, for companies that report a 25% drop in revenue. The UK has this week announced that they're going to start paying statutory sick pay on the first day that workers are sick um, or maybe self-isolating, so rather than paying it on the fourth. So sort of taking these these policy measures, is, is this the kind of thing we need to see more of or can interest rates do it all? It's, it's, that, I think that, that that's exactly right. So for his, 
So often, and that's for historical reasons, we've seen that we have resorted to monetary policy as the first response if we get the shock to the economy. And often it was deemed that central banks are more independent from politics and quicker than any government could could uh, could come up with any initiative. But as you correctly point out, what we, in this instance, what really doesn't make a change? If a business is closing, they're not necessarily looking for a loan. Uh, and, and as uh, Will pointed out, if this is more like a V-shaped recovery, then it's, it's for a central bank to question why should they um, think that financial conditions should ease. Frankly, personally, I think it's more that the Fed and other central banks do this as a signaling uh, impact in an attempt to soften the blow to the consumer and business confidence. Um, and as this, yeah, as this is, this feels very preemptive, but I think it's it's more the signaling effect that they want to take out of it and, uh, than anything okay. else. And and sorry, Stephen. And, and, and as you oh, correctly yeah. it, so, so what you would expect is that, for instance, more targeted intervention by governments, at, for this instance, would be more effective. So if you if you get to the bottlenecks or the parts where you can support people that would or companies that would have damage. That makes yes. sense, yeah. So so sticking with you, if I may, back back to the market side of things, I saw someone suggesting that the 10-year uh, interest rate in the US, which is obviously the cost of government borrowing over that time frame, is now the lowest that reference rate has been in about 150 years, which seems phenomenal. I guess the question would be, what's the point in owning that kind of paper? Um, you know, if, if it looks like it's going to be a you know pretty pretty low interest rate that you're going to be receiving, I'm only getting about 35 basis points or percent for the pleasure of funding number 10 spending plans. Does that feel like a good trade? Um, yeah, well, it is indeed the case, and as I think across the board, that interest rates are extremely low. And as you mentioned, in the context of 100 or 150 years, they're getting to, to new lows every other uh, e- event, it looks like. And somehow it feels that it needs to normalize. To us, it feels it low and interest rate over time should rise again. But actually, there are a lot of structural factors why interest rates could be low for quite a bit longer. So think of demographics, technology. So there are a lot of things, a lot of um, factors why interest rates are yeah are a bit lower. The risk would be that markets and investors start to extrapolate this too far into the future. So if we think, well, central banks will be unable to lift policy rates and actually inflation has been absent in the last decade, so there's no inflation risk, you would be willing to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable buying a bond or loaning for 1% interest, although it's low, it's in the context where your cash interest rates are even lower. Um, but the risk is if we extrapolate too far into the future, so say for the next five or 10 years, it's questionable whether that's really true. So at the moment we see central banks assessing their framework for monetary policy, where some options are on the table that they would allow a little bit of an overshoot with inflation going forward. Uh, we see that central banks are easing in an environment where unemployment rates are very low and some spare capacity in the economy has been eroded. So yes, interest rates are low and there might be very good reasons for interest rate to stay lower for longer. But looking to the investment landscape, I think investors should not extrapolate it too far into the future. There's a risk that it becomes too comfortable to accept that inflation or inflation will never rise and policy rates will never rise into the future. Yeah, okay. And Will, I saw some um, interesting attempts to compare this to the 1918 great flu pandemic. I'm assuming that this is maybe a bit of a stretch, or I'm hoping. Yes, yeah, I hope so too. Um, yeah, there are some similarities, but I think the differences are probably more instructive, um, important and instructive, Nikki. I think... Um, 
For a start, uh, the comparison provides quite a neat illustration in many senses of how far medical science has come over the last century. So at the time, to give you an example, um, there were all sorts of conspiracies when people, conspiracy theories, when people were looking to explain what it was, and people, no one had really any idea why all of these young people were being um, killed in such massive numbers. Now, one popular theory um, was that it was to do with the misalignment of the planets which incidentally um, is what gave you the name influenza derived from the Italian word for influence. There you go. There's the random fact of the day. I think uh, we could just stop this podcast there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the best information I've amazing, had all day. It's amazing, isn't it? I could re- I, so it was a very good article I read. But in, in terms of treatment, so physicians at the time, they recommended quinine, which uh, apparently is of no help. Gin and uh, tonic. But a dry, yeah, that's exactly right. But also dry champagne, you're getting the okay. theory here. Um, but also, um, I think it's called uh, phenol, uh, phenolphthalene. Uh, it's a cancer-causing lax- laxative. Uh, they also did some bloodletting as well. So this was the treatment of the time. Now, it wasn't until 1933 that two British scientists managed to demonstrate that the cause must be due to a new uh, sort of, you know, uh, a, a totally new class of virus. Uh, and finally, in 1940, the newly invented electron microscope took a picture of the influenza virus. And for the first time in history, we got to see kind of our enemy. Now, contrast that with today. From the very start of the outbreak, um, a virus was suspected. Within a couple of weeks, it had been identified as a coronavirus, sequenced its, uh, we'd sequenced its genome, uh, and discovered um, the most likely host were bats. Um, this information was published by a Chinese team and was instantly shared across the scientific community globally, allowing research um, labs around the world to begin the search for you know, the complicated process of understanding um, the virus and uh, you know, hopefully finding a vaccine and a cure. So within a year, uh, within a year we're told that um, you know, it's quite likely that you'll have made progress on the former. Uh, you know, one um, hopeful is already in testing. So it, it's just a very different context. It shows how far we've come. Mm, good. Reassuring. So, so Mike, let's bring you in. You represent the various teams that, um, that help identify the best investment funds out there on behalf of our clients. I assume you and your team have been speaking to them pretty regularly throughout all of this market tur- turbulence. Are you are you sort of unpicking anything um, you know really insightful from from the fund managers that you're talking to that you can share with us? Sure. So so when you read that um, stock markets around the world are falling, you look a bit closer and you find that everything's falling. I mean everything. Mm-hmm. So when we talk to fund managers, they're telling us at the moment what they're doing now is sifting through the data to see if there's anything worth buying. So here's an example. Um, shares in international consolidated airlines, not necessarily a household name here, but they are the parent group for British Airways. Shares have fallen nearly 40% this year. That's four zero. Phenomenal. Um, and we all know why. You know, travel is down and there are travel restrictions in certain parts of the world because it's a, cause it's a um, um, global airline, both pleasure and business um, um, use. But when the shares are down 40%, would you buy them now? So the fund, man- the fund managers are trying to work out, is there more pain to come? So um, should, should the shares have fallen maybe 50%, 60% or more? And if so, then that means that the shares today, despite being down 40%, are still expensive. So don't buy them. Or maybe they've fallen too much. Maybe the disruption will be short-lived and the shares should have only fallen maybe 10%. If so, they're cheap and the fund managers can buy the shares. Okay. Now, I don't know that. I can't do the work. I can't go and meet the board of British Airways at a moment's notice and ask them to explain the impact of lower air travel on the company. But the fund managers can, and that's what we pay them for. Or immediately reassess the implications for market share in the industry with Flybe News this morning. Absolutely. All those kind absolutely. of things. It's the, absolutely. And you look at the rest of the market in the UK, Flybe 
EasyJet, Ryanair, what are the others, the other yeah. domestic players doing it's as well? Just a reminder of the value of expertise, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Okay. And and have you any other examples? Yeah, so let's have a um, look at another one. Um, US company Live Nation, better known here, Ticketmaster. That's where you and I go on and buy our um, uh, music concerts, uh, tickets. Um, so when you look at artists today, music artists, they rely on the revenues from concerts and touring, okay? There's no money to be made music in- Music artists. Music artists. Music artists. Oh, I was, I was yeah. going to say pop and rock. I didn't know, <laughs> I don't know the audience. So my, my children say, OK, boomer, when well, I make <laughs> comments like that. So, <laughs> so artists today don't make any, any money from CDs, if you remember what they were, or, or even or music streaming. Take cassettes, yeah, take exactly. cassettes yeah. Or even music streaming, there's no money. So what we're seeing today are that concerts are being cancelled. Well, in fact, no, they're not being cancelled. They're just being postponed. So they will take place later in the year or next year. So that's not lost revenue. That's postponed revenue. Okay, now you compare that to something else that you would spend the money on. So if you have a, um, a booked a table next week at Pizza Express, you cancel that, you're not gonna go out next month and have two meals or book two tables, etc. That is lost revenue versus postponed revenue. So which one would you buy, the, uh, the restaurant or the uh, Live Nation? Again, I don't know, but that's what we're paying the active managers to do, to make those decisions. No, that's, that's, really, um, that's really helpful. So. We've had other stuff going on um, in the US. Turning to the US, we had Super Tuesday. Um, we saw the US primaries. Um, the field has now narrowed. Um, it's a it's a two horse race. Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Will can you um, share with us a little bit? Are there are there many sort of policy differences from from the two contenders that we can look into and think a bit about what the future might look like? Yeah, Nikki. I mean, there are, and it was a fascinating twist, wasn't it? When Joe Biden's campaign was kind of you know back from the dead, or at least life support anyway. And, he, and like you say, I mean, he won handsomely in, and it really was, you know, previous to, I guess, South Carolina, it was um, it was Bernie Sanders to lose. And then Biden won South Carolina and then took 10 out of the 14 um, Super Tuesdays states. Elizabeth Warren is still in the competition um, in terms of, um, at the time of recording, I think, but um, with some arguing that she's kind of maybe impeding Bernie Sanders' run at the title, um, given that, their support kind of um, occupies ideologically roughly similar ground, um, but uh, you know there may be more important nuances there. But I guess from a, from a, from a policy perspective, Sanders versus Biden, um, they certainly talk a very different game. Um, you know, Biden is seen as the kind of continuity candidate, um, where uh, you know much closer to the center ground, whereas Sanders offers a very different vision of the future um, with kind of healthcare for all, education for all, kind of broken up banks broken up tech companies, you know, higher taxes, all that kind of thing. However, one um, once you factor in the kind of likely political hue of Congress and all the other kind of checks and balances in the US system, you might wonder whether actually the enacted or enactable uh, agenda looks all that different between the two. Slightly higher taxes and an expansion of healthcare seems to be, you know, a common factor. So you did see, you saw people chalk up a very sharp recovery in share, US share prices uh, yesterday to kind of the Super Tuesday results and the you know people saying that it was less likely now that Sanders was going to be making a run at president therefore the Biden effect was creating stock market I think that's probably to be tuned out a little bit that sounds like fanciful thinking to me a bit too much uh, hope in the market as yes to uh, yes just stories I think and anything for us you know in the rest of the world to take from from this well, I think um, the Democratic primaries have been cited by some as a kind of potential template um, for the left to come up with their answer to 
you know, what some are calling, uh, you know, rights of center populism or right wing populism or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And essentially you're being offered or you have been offered a few different visions. So with, I guess the first one would be Joe Biden, which is kind of, you know, uh, nothing to see here. What you saw was a blip. Um, let's get back to the kind of the Obama era kind of politics. Um, the second option would be the kind of Sanders Warren uh, agenda, which is kind of um, address the grievances of the people who voted, chose for populism, uh, uh, you know, lower costs, fight inequality, that kind of thing. Uh, and the third one, which is now kind of being taken out um, so much was the Buddha judge, uh, you know, Mayor Pete, um, which is kind of unite the center right and left, um, a kind of new modern way of politics, uh, sort of kind of uh, a, a little bit like a Macron, um, you know, on Marsh, uh, although some would say that he's now kind of tacked more to the right. Um, so it's now between options one and two, really. Um, there will be implications for markets, but I think the point for us to make is still that it's kind of, you know, it's a long and winding road um, and you want to be careful of you know strong views here. It's just interesting to watch, really. And there's still an actual election to have at there's the end of it. There's still an actual yeah. election to yeah. have, exactly. And, and Mike, I guess the, the same question applies. When, when you talk to the managers that, that, um, that run money in the U.S., how do they tend to deal with with the sort of political landscape alongside the the sort of market reading of the runes? Yeah, um, good question. So, so, so each of the fund managers that we use have dedicated in-house resources to to assess things like political risk, etc. But at the end of the day, this gives them just some direction as to what might guide markets in the future. But we've got to remember that the important job of the fund managers is to carry out research on the underlying companies themselves. That's what we pay them for. So, in fact, it doesn't really matter whether uh, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Donald Trump will be in the White House in January next year. It's really going to have no effect on the Lady Gaga World Tour or the um, Genesis Reunion Tour. So it's probably going to have no effect on the share price. So it's not really going to have you know, an impact on, for example, the share price of Live Nation. So that's what they're focusing on. It's, it's about the companies. Yeah. Okay. And, and just, just to sort of replay that, that you're talking there about experienced fund managers that are choosing this kind of thing. We're not for a minute suggesting that those are those particular shares are, are ones that we'd recommend Ab at this time. Absolutely. Just examples to bring to life kind of how fund managers look at the revenues of companies and the different the different streams where they come from, etc. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so with that, thank you so much to the three of you. Um, that, that was very insightful. Certainly I, I learned a lot, especially where influenza came from or, or indeed the name, if not, if not the actual illness. Um, keep washing your hands. Um, that's the best, uh, best policy for us all. Thanks very much and join us next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.